From the Political Science Department at UW-Madison, I'm Adam Wigger. I'm Mia Wagner. And I'm Michael Mikowski. In this podcast series, we will speak with UW-Madison faculty members and other experts to hear their thoughts on the COVID-19 pandemic, as well as the political and global changes that the situation has warranted. This is 1050 Bascom, COVID-19. Today on 1050 Bascom, we are excited to interview Kevin Alexson, political science badger alumni and senior manager, governmental relations at Ocean Conservancy. We'll ask Kevin to give us some more insight into his role at Ocean Conservancy and how students who may be interested in this career path might go about it later in the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today, Kevin. Adam, it's a real privilege to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we can start pretty broadly and about your start. Uh, you're an alumni of UW. What went through your mind as you were choosing your major and as you were kind of developing what your professional narrative might look like? <laughs> such a simple question and such a complicated answer. Um, so when I went to when I went to UW, uh, I went there with the intent of being a uh, chemical engineer, and um, over the course of the probably the first couple of years of school. Uh, I discovered one, I didn't like chemistry nearly as much as I thought I did. And then subsequent to that, I discovered I didn't like math nearly as much as I thought I did. So um, that seemed to kind of be a good signal that maybe engineering wasn't for me. Um, and then, you know, as you, when, when you become, transfer the letters in science uh, school and you're undecided for a little bit and you're doing your big think about what you want to be when you grow up, um, one of the things I was pondering was, um, you know, what my other interests were and what, um, you know, how I thought those interests might translate to uh, finding a job that, you know, you would enjoy going to. Um, I got involved on campus. Uh, I'd always been interested in politics, um, been, you know, relatively politically active, uh, stemming back to, you know, very earliest days in high school. And, um, I had thought about um, that I was always interested in politics, a bit of a political junkie, that sort of thing. And so I started looking for uh, groups uh, during this sort of undecided uh, <laughs> pilgrimage, figuring out what I wanted to do. And uh, I, I, went to, um, I went to a meeting of the College Republicans. And uh, that night they happened to have uh, as sort of a big speaker at the meeting was um, this is early on in the fall, probably my, my third fall at the school. And um, they had as a speaker, someone who had spent the previous summer interning at the White House uh, for uh, President uh, George H.W. Bush. And it was basically just him sort of sitting around telling stories about the experiences, the people he got to meet, the things he got to do, stuff like that. And it was just, um, it was like catnip for me. It was just, it was great. And he was talking about uh, some internships that he was doing since then there in, you know, in Madison, obviously the benefit of the school is it's co-located with the state capital. And so there's a lot of, um, a lot of political internship opportunities right in your backyard. And he was talking about that. And just the more I heard him talk, the more in my own mind, I started thinking, 
hey, I could do that. I could be that. That sounds like that's a lot of fun. And that would be a really cool thing to do. Um, so uh, kind of from that is what set me on the path to, okay, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll go for political science and, um, and then I'll just you know, plan to pursue um, you know, a career in, in politics in one form or another. And that's sort of how I, how I ended up uh, graduating with a poli-sci degree and, and knowing that I wanted to get into that field. Yeah. How did all of that lead to now your job at uh, Ocean Conservancy? Yeah. So, so when I graduated, um, right before I graduated, I guess I should talk about what I did before I graduated. Before I graduated, I took advantage of, you know, going to school at, in the same town as the, as the state capital. And I did a lot of internships up at the, uh, for the state legislature, um, mostly on the state, uh, state assembly side and just uh, and volunteered for, for different campaigns, you know, whatever I could do in the immediate Madison area. I didn't have a car at the time. Um, so you needed to be able to, uh, you needed stuff, you know, that was pretty local. That would be easy for, a, uh, you know, for a, a student to get to. And this is, uh, and I went to school uh, let's just say if, uh, 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 just a little bit before Uber and uh, ride sharing and, and that whole concept. So, um, so I did that. I just tried to avail myself of the opportunities that existed being in Madison, um, you know, just chances to get firsthand experience of what it's like to be in one of these legislator offices, um, working with folks, just, you know, watching how they act, how they how they go about their business, how they go about their job, what they needed, what their boss needed from them, what they tried to provide for their boss. Um, just trying to be a sponge and absorb as much of that knowledge as possible, meet as many people as possible, uh, because politics is a relationship business and it's a network business. So I knew enough to know that I needed to know as many people as possible uh, in, in and around uh, the political spheres that I wanted to run um, after graduation to enhance my chances of getting that kind of job. And uh, once I graduated, um, I only had a, a I graduated uh, in the winter. So I only had a, a, a place in town, um, you know, through that semester. And so I had to move back uh, home with my parents. Uh, they live in, uh, at the time, they lived in suburban Milwaukee, um, Waukesha, for those who uh, are familiar with the southeastern Wisconsin uh, long uh, Native American names, and was looking job searching really hard back in Madison. But um, after a little bit, right, I, I knew it, you know, was I didn't have anything right when I graduated. So I knew, okay, if I'm going to be living at home with my parents, I got to be out of the house as much as possible because once you've been to college and then you go home. Right, your parents always see you as a kid, even though you might be an adult. So, uh, I was out pounding the pounding the ground really hard, trying to find a job, and just in the immediate area uh, of suburban Milwaukee. And just by happenstance, um, I walked in, just total out of the blue, no appointment or anything. I walked into the district office of Representative Jim Sensenbrenner, um, and thought, you know, what the heck, I'll just go in and introduce myself and see if they have any internship, you know, any internship openings, um, you know, you know, just basically under that ethos of I got to meet as many people as possible, expand that network. And that 
you know, one thing led to another and I actually landed a job in that district office. Um, wasn't doing what I wanted to do because uh, I had these grandiose visions of being this big policy advisor, right? Telling, you know, having the, the whispered ear of, of your boss and all of that, which is a very romantic notion, but that's not entirely how it works. Um, but I ended up with a job in Sense of Runner's office, uh, which um, this, so this would have been, I graduated uh, December of 95, uh, ended up with this job in Sense of Runner's office in February of 96. 96 was a presidential election year. And they told me when they're, when they uh, going through the interviewing process that um, they, you know, depending on how things went in the, you know, in the November elections that uh, Jim was going to be in line, possibly be in line to become the chair of a full committee. And if that happened, then there would probably be staff from the DC office who would move down to the committee office. Thus, there would be, you know, open spots in the DC office. And if you get in here, right, then, you know, that's a possibility down the line. And that, again, was really appealing. And I got to be honest, it was well beyond my ambitions at the time. I, would, I had been so fixated on, on working in Madison um, at the state government that just the prospect of living and working in D.C. seemed like this wild fantasy. Um, anyway, I worked in that office for about a year. The election turned out in a way that, um, that, that uh, allowed Jim to become a uh, the chairman of the House Science Committee, and um, you know all that staff transition that had been talked about had happened, and I was offered the chance to to move out to Washington and and work in in the D.C. office for for Representative Sensenbrenner, and uh, as fortune would have it, I also had an offer to go work for a state senator um, in Madison, sort of a, at the time a, a bit of a up and comer, um, you know, at the state level. And so I had these two offers in hand, and it was quite literally a fork in the road. What do I want to do? Um, and you know, the safe, you know, sort of really known play was going to be going to Madison, but you know, there was this prospect of getting to D.C. and nothing was guaranteed. And and I, you know, had always lived pretty conservatively, just not taking a ton of chances at that point. And if I mean, if you ever arrive at a point in your life where you have the opportunity to sort of say, what the heck, let's, let's, you know, let's roll the dice and see how it goes. I figured that, you know, being our new graduate of, from college, that was the time to do it. And so I did it, um, moved out to DC, arrived on January 1st, 1997. And uh, I have lived here in the area ever since. So it all seems to have gone okay. Now I worked on the Hill for a long time um, uh, on, on the house side uh, after uh, I left uh, Sensenbrenner's office to go work for Mark Green. Um, and I worked for Mark for, for a while, and that was a, that was the, the experience working for Mark Green was the experience that I moved to DC for. It was the, you know, trusted advisor working with uh, a boss who, who really um, had a, um, you know, a very consistent view of the world and of politics that I had myself, and it was just, it was such a luxury and a privilege working for him, and it was really fulfilling. Um, I left the Hill eventually uh, this, uh, to go work for a political advocacy organization for moderate Republicans, uh, stayed there uh, about a year. And then um, somehow, some way I got an opportunity to go work in the administration of President George W. Bush, uh, worked at NOAA for um, uh, the last little bit of the first term and for most all of the second term. 
that was as transformational uh, a professional experience as I've ever had. Um, and I'll get into the why, the why of that later, uh, but that was, that was a phenomenal, phenomenal experience. And um, then after that, I left, um, you know, left that position. I went into uh, corporate life. I went into the private sector, worked for um, one of the world's largest uh, energy companies, uh, doing general public affairs stuff uh, for them for, uh, for a while. And uh, when uh, at the end of my time there, when I didn't want to relocate to Houston, Texas, um, I left and uh, uh, eventually ended up with, uh, with Ocean Conservancy, where I currently work. And I'm a lobbyist on the government relations team. They're um, primarily doing federal lobbying, but uh, recently doing a little, dabbling a little bit at state level. Um, the, the issues and the topic areas that I work on are fisheries management and um, ocean plastic pollution. Um, and uh, with most of my time being spent on the ocean plastic pollution issue. And if you had said, if you told me the day after I graduated, December of 95, that I was gonna end up low these many years later, working in the conservation realm uh, on ocean issues, specifically on ocean plastics type stuff, you know, I would have never expected it. It certainly wasn't what my vision was at the time, but it's been a long meandering road. And if there's one thing that I tell um, young folks, uh, get, young folks, God, it makes me sound so old. Uh, I tell students that are looking into post-college uh, and tackling their career, it, the, the best, I think the best advice that I can give is just be open to the unexpected doors that will that will, you know, open themselves to you as you progress in your career. You'll never, uh, just trying to plan out a, a, a career as a linear path is, you know, you're either doomed to failure or you're doomed to miss a whole lot of opportunities. So what I would say is just be open to new possibilities because you never know what will come your way as you, as you travel along on that path. So I'm, let me pause there. Can you speak a little bit to how you navigated the transition between like public work and public service and the private industry. Cause a lot of students are kind of wondering, you know, like, where do I start? If I get yeah. into one, do, do I not get to get in the other? Yeah, there's, um, there's a lot of layers there. Um, and I think it depends on the individual. I think it's a lot of it is dependent on the individual, but let me try to speak with some generalized, uh, uh, make some generalized comments here that I think apply to probably most anyone that is even entertaining the idea of working in and around government politics and the notion of public service. Um, working on the Hill and then working for, um, you know, in the, in the administration of a president, those were uh, the sense of, of, of purpose and the sense of, of, uh, fulfillment that you get professionally in what you do, it's really hard to um, adequately describe it in words, right? It's a really profound thing. Um, the notion that you're doing something uh, for something that's bigger than yourself. Um, it, it's, it's, a, it's a really gratifying thing. It's a really fulfilling thing. And what I found when I moved from, you know, kind of government service uh, to the private sector, to corporate life, um, there was, uh, I'd be lying if I said that was just as fulfilling. 
um, it wasn't, and it wasn't in a pretty major way. Um, that was one thing I missed terribly. Uh, there was the excitement of a new position and of learning new things, um, learning to do new, um, you know, kind of disciplines within the realm of public affairs, uh, you know, media relations, state government relations, policy analysis, stuff like that. You know, those are, you know, in and of themselves, they were, they were fun, fun uh, experiences at the company, but just you're a part of this, you know, large company and not, uh, not everybody's experience at a private company is going to be the same as mine. Uh, but, you know, it was a huge company. Every, you know, there were a lot of folks, most folks are lifers at the company. They've never done anything else but work for this company. They've done different jobs within the company, but have only known one employer. And as a mid-career hire, which is what I was considered when I was hired, right, they, you know, they tell you, oh, I want to, you know, we want the benefit of your experience of the diversity of, of what you've done and seen and, and what you think. And we want you to bring that to us and make us better. And they tell you that. And then when you get hired, right, the experience, at least for me, was they spend every waking moment trying to hammer all of that out of you to get you to just be another mindless drone in their, you know, in their procession. And um, I'm not going to name the company I worked for because of my description of the experience. But it was, you know, I really struggled with that, I think, is the bottom line. And uh you know, and, and ultimately, that's one of the one of the big reasons why I decided not to relocate my family so I could stay employed at this company, uh, because if I didn't really find it very rewarding and fulfilling working for them, why should I move? You know, move my wife and my kids, you know, someplace else, make them all give up everything that's familiar and and uh, to them, you know, so I can stay at a job that I you know had pretty marginal feelings for, so. Not, not that, <laughs> probably not the answer you were looking for, but that's, uh, you know, I tried, I'm just trying to be brutally honest here so folks can have no, uh, no illusions about um, some of this stuff. No, absolutely. We appreciate the honesty. Now, with your work right now, what might a typical workday look like for you? And maybe we can think about that as like what a typical workday has looked like for you since March and then maybe before that? Yeah. Yeah, I think there's there's a there's a definitive sort of pre-COVID, post-COVID uh, sort of uh, answer here, um, and I would say it's not a typical day. It's more like a typical week because when you're a lobbyist, uh, and you know, again, predominantly my my work is is interfacing and advocating with Congress. So you know, a typical week is really contingent upon what's happening in Congress that week. Uh, which drives a lot of what, you know, how you spend your day and things like that, right? You have big strategic goals that you're working towards. Um, and those, you know, that work takes place and, and, and happens uh, regardless of what the congressional calendar is in a given week. But then there's, you know, the more, you know, tactical things that you're doing. And those are completely driven by what's happening in Congress. Um, you know, what days they're in session, you know, what days can you get meetings with, um, with different offices and staffers for different offices that you need to talk to about, you know, whether it's this bill or it's that briefing or it's something else that's happening. Um, you know, it, it's all driven by that. And, um, you know, you usually try to, um, you know, you try to interface with staff, uh, you know, and that's, you know, the prime, 
that's that's the prime outlet for your advocacy um, interfacing with with congressional staff both in the personal offices as well as on committees and you are you know tuesday through thursday are tougher days to get in front of them um, because that's a lot of times when um, you know that's sort of high tide for congressional business it's when Congressional hearings are happening, other meetings are happening, stuff like that that they're getting ready for. So Mondays and Fridays, uh, typically when you can have more success um, interfacing with, with those folks. And if you're seeking out like a face-to-face uh, -face meeting, that sort of thing. Um, and sometimes you're seeking out meetings not because you have a specific agenda, but just because you're looking to do a little relationship maintenance. Um, or you're, you know, you're in the process of establishing a relationship, um, you know, with a, a new office or a new staffer in an existing office that's really important for you on the topic areas that you work. So, um, you know, that's that's pretty, um, you know, that's sort of the standard thing is you're, you know, Tuesday through Thursday, you're tracking what's happening at committees, you're, you know, trying to, you know, email, phone call, sometimes you can get up on the hill and that, and that sort of thing. You know, Friday meetings, you try to, you know, face to face, you're trying not to go for Friday meetings because, um, you know, although sometimes that that's usually, you know, that that's an open window that staff will have in their schedules, but it, it can be, I think, how, effectiveness in your meeting, depending on what the stakes are that you have for a meeting, um, you know, <laughs> Friday afternoons can produce very limited uh, you know, limited effectiveness in that regard because staff are sort of on a big exhale um, glide path out of their work week. Um, so I always try to front load my work, you know, Mondays, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, stuff like that. If I can get in in the, in the meat of the week, that sort of thing. And just Fridays are kind of either the really low intensity kind of meeting, sort of a relationship maintenance, or boy, if you just, if you have no other choice type of, you know, type of thing. So that's, that's sort of pre-COVID. Now, post-COVID, um, most of the staff are working remotely as well. And so, um, you know, and, and the, the congressional schedule has been so um, uneven, I think is probably the way to put it. Um, and only within the last couple of months has there been some sort of sense of normalcy where they're doing um, committee activities uh, that aren't specifically COVID response related. Um, so anyway, in the general sense, you find that staff often are a little bit more accessible uh, than they might be in a typical, uh, in, in a typical situation, um, but it's all virtual contact. And, you know, it's phone, it's email, um, it's Zoom or something thereabouts. Um, and I, I mean, I find that I, I have found that I, I prefer to do Zoom calls just because it's a little bit nicer to see a person's face that you're talking to and, and you can get some of those nonverbal cues on how a conversation is going um, than if you're just talking on the phone. Um, but you know, you'll take whatever you can get depending on what you're, depending on what you're looking for. Now, a lot of people aren't, you know, there isn't a ton of non pandemic response related legislation happening right now, but there's a little bit here and there. And something that I'm working on in the ocean plastics front, um, there's a bill that we're trying to move through the house now. It's already made it through the Senate and it's just been, you know, it's been a really strange experience sort of 
filled with, you know, fits and starts and stops and hiccups and things like that, where you're just, you're trying to get connected with the right people in a way that will produce useful information that will then guide what you need to do in the moment to, you know, to, uh, to advocate on behalf of it. So it's a <laughs> very much a learning process. I'm sure it has been exactly that. Um, now kind of thinking back to your experience in college and as we're our listen, a lot of our listeners are college students and a lot of them are kind of looking at their future careers and being like, all right, well, how do I navigate what the world looks like right now? Um, especially in reference to what kind of work I want to do. So maybe you could share, um, some things that you did outside the classroom at college that might've helped with finding your path or like finding internships. Like you, you talked about your internship with uh, rep Sensebrenner and then how that kind of snowballed into things. But was there, were there any other like activities or groups that you were a part of that helped you um, either develop your professional narrative or helped you get into a position? Sure. The, um, I mean, I think again, if, if folks are thinking about, or if they're pretty, you know, confident that they want to pursue something in the political, uh, the political, uh, sort of what I call the orbit, um, you know, then you are just shortchanging yourself if you aren't trying to, you know, seek out every internship you can uh, that you can manage to do while you're in college. Um, with so much uh, there with the state government, um, with the, all of the organizations outside of state government that look to advocate before state government, you know, whether it's, you know, with an elected official or, you know, some other organization out there that, um, you know, that's looking to, you know, try to advocate before the, the state legislature. There are, there should be, you know, well, in a normal scenario, there is a multitude of internship opportunities. Um, in this weird, you know, COVID constrained, environment that we find ourselves in, I'm not really in a great spot to speak to, you know, just how, how much in terms of volume of opportunity there is, but that should be something that folks should be looking for. And then, uh, you know, I think, you know, there, cause there's also organizations, um, you know, it's not just about elected officials, it's about organizations as well. And those are the reason why internships are so valuable is, you know, one, it's sort of tangible, quote unquote, work experience um, that you can get in an office, understanding how to, you know, modulate your behavior and, you know, what, what's cool to talk about, what's not cool to talk about in a workplace. And some of these fundamental things that um, are just very, you know, they're, they're sort of underestimated uh, in terms of their value. It's, you know, it, it's very important stuff to just, you know, figure out from, you know, cues from other folks that are just a handful of years ahead of you in, in the process, you know, to see how they've done it. Um, but there's also great opportunity with subject matter um, to just be exposed to different types of, different types of organizations, advocacy in different types of settings, um, advocacy from the perspective of a nonprofit organization, you know, whether it's an environmental organization, a business group, a teacher's group, um, you know, hunters, you know, whatever the case may be, advocacy for groups like that, that are very sort of topic specific, 
and advocacy from a point of view of a legislator, right? They're very different. So you can, you know, so you're, you know, the opportunity to learn very, you know, the discipline of advocacy from different perspectives, I think is again, another just really prime opportunity um, that, that you can, you know, that, that folks should pursue. And, you know, again, you know, with the backdrop of all the things I've already talked about with the need to just meet people, make, you know, establish relationships, um, expand your network, stay in touch with them, cultivate them as, 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 you know, as, you know, acquaintances and friends if possible. And just folks that become, you know, that, that are willing to give you the time of the day, you know, after the point at which you offer them free labor, you know, and that's what you, you know, that's a big thing. College kids have time and, you know, they can offer that time in the form of, of work, you know, providing a free work, you know, a free workforce. And, um, you know, you should take advantage of that because believe me, whatever organization you, you interned for, right, is enjoying very much the benefits of your free labor. So you should get something out of it as well. And that's how you should approach it. I think when faced with the choice between another degree, another certificate versus the opportunity to get tangible experience doing something, to me, I don't think there's much of a choice. I think you go get the experience, especially nowadays when even some of the most entry level of entry level jobs um, require experience. Uh, you know, you're all, you know, you're not going to get, you're not going to get it as a new graduate if you have, you know, 12 different degrees and certificates, right? That's, that becomes, you know, the, the, the number, the sheer volume of academic um, validations that you have uh, becomes less and less important the farther you get out of college. And at some point, it just becomes a degree. And, you know, whereas the, the, the actual real world experience that you, that you gained from an internship, you know, it may expose you to a couple people that you stay in touch with over time and that down the road in your career become either uh, proactive mentors and, you know, who help you um, get, get jobs or if they become people that you just are able to tap into later on um, because they're in a different spot and you're applying for a spot, you know, wherever they are, and maybe they're the decision authority on something. And I can't tell you how valuable it is to expand your world um, as opposed to, uh, you know, I'm not trying to, to denigrate the idea of academic pursuit, which I think is very important. And believe me, no one treasures their UW-Madison degree more than I do. Um, but there's, I think, a ceiling on the value of, you know, multiple degrees and certificates. Yeah, thank you for sharing all that. It's a wealth of knowledge. Wealth of knowledge is often code for you're pretty old and you've been doing this a long time, which I'm feeling I mean, wisdom. very much. Wisdom. I, this, before even this conversation, I believe me, I was feeling, I was feeling it uh, quite a bit, um, especially as I've gotten more, tried to get a little bit more active with, um, you know, helping that, you know, being engaged back in the department and, and I, I, I do a little bit of work with the Wisconsin and Washington program uh, as a mentor. I've been trying to do some more of that because, um, you know, you reach a point where, you know, 
you reach a point in your career where you realize, boy, there were a lot of people who helped me along the way. And, you know, sometimes you, you know, appreciate that appropriately in the moment, but sometimes you don't. And as just as I've looked back and, and realized just the magnitude of the value I got from some of the folks that helped me, it just, to me, um, you know, it sort of behooves me to, to make sure that I am sort of, you know, kind of paying it forward, right? It's just, you know, perpetuating that cycle and trying to help folks. So that's, you know, you know, to the extent that anything that I have to say is useful to anybody, I'm happy to spew my words here for you. <laughs> well, we are very happy to have you. Um, you. You mentioned earlier how you are preferring Zoom and a lot of politics and a lot of um, our, our industry is networking. How are you navigating communications and um, networking right now in your career now that we are in this digital world? Tough, uh, it's a tough question. In, in you know, what, what I try to do for my daily, you know, work responsibilities, right? I'm just, I'm trying to stay as in touch with the folks that I know I need to be in touch with sort of long-term. Um, and, you know, like the key relationships that I've, that I've developed on Capitol Hill with in, in particular offices, right? You just try to, you know, just do the the hundred little things that you can do to sort of just make sure you stay top of mind. Because right now, I think the biggest risk in this sort of work at home um, w world that we're in right now is out of sight, out of mind. And people can forget about you if you let them. And so the key is to not be a pest or a nuisance about it, but to just, you know, it's, it's, periodic meetings, but then understanding, hey, maybe I should just send a note. Hey, I was thinking about, I saw this story and I thought, you know, it reminded me of that conversation we had one time about that. Thought I would flip it to you. Hope you're well, right? Just that sort of a thing. Um, and that's a constant struggle because working at home can be really, really isolating, even uh, if you do work super hard to try to stay connected with folks, both in your professional network and, you know, and in your personal network as well. So I'm not sure I have a ton of wisdom to share here other than it's just really hard and it requires a hell of a lot of effort. It just, it requires a lot of effort and you just, and, and follow through and ongoing. And cause like right now it's so easy for things to just sort of peter out if you don't pursue them. Um, so follow through is super important. We've asked uh, pretty much all of our career conversation, our Badger alumni that have come back on and talked about their career, we've asked them all. A lot of employers are wondering whether or not, or wondering the, the validity of the role of the cover letter. And I don't know if you hire a lot of people, if you read a lot of cover letters, but what are you, what are you thinking now? Because there, there's a movement of people that say we don't need anymore. What are you thinking? I, so <laughs> I, I have again complicated views about this. And let me preface by saying, I am someone who has historically in his career uh, hated the cover letter, absolutely hated. The amount of anxiety that I have endured because, oh, did I say the right thing in a cover letter? Did I not make it farther in the process because my cover letter was not as good as someone else's? I mean, the amount of time that you spend worrying about this stuff is unproductive. Um, 
so I'm anti cover letter as it as it starts. But um, I know that there are uh, there's an evolving viewpoint on this. I know there are there are many uh, employers that just dispense with it um, entirely. And I know there are some that still very much abide by the cover letter. So, you know, it's very situational. I think it's very dependent on the employer. And if the employer asks for a cover letter in like, you know, in, in the directions on how to apply, I think you have to take it seriously. Um, but I have uh, certainly come to believe now I'm quite a bit further along in my career path than most of the folks I might be talking to. Uh, but I, I try very hard to really keep a very low manageable ceiling on the amount of, you know, blood, sweat, and tears that I put into putting a cover letter together. And I think there's just some real basic points. You just, I think you always have to make sure that you remember what's the point of a cover letter. It's to quite simply articulate that you are applying for a very specific job and some very short narration on why you think you're a, why you're, you know, why you think you're a fit for that job, you know, why it's worth them talking to you over the phone or face to face um, about it. That's it. And then once once that task is complete, then the cover letter serves no purpose. As we're kind of wrapping up, um, I want to ask one more question, and I think it, it's kind of a lighter question. But how are you, or what maybe what are some strategies that you are imploring that are helping you? Uh, keep a sane work-life balance, especially now that we're all working from home? Yeah. <laughs> That's a tough question for me to answer right now because I feel like uh, uh, anything I say is going to make me a bit of a fraud because I'm struggling with that very thing right now. Um, I'm finding myself, um, um, I have a designated workspace at home in my basement and um, I find myself um, much more so than I used to do before COVID when, you know, I'd bring work stuff home, but if I didn't do any work at home, then it was no big deal. I didn't do it. Um, now it's like, oh, you know, it's eight o'clock. You know what? I see this email in my inbox. Let me just go down real quick, jump on my computer and respond because I'm a little worried that if I don't, that you know, some whole, you know, everyone will get all spun up about something that they don't need to get spun up about. So let me just go take care of this one thing. And then 30 minutes later, 40 minutes later, hour later. And, you know, I, whether it's at night or on a weekend or whatever, it's, it's getting increasingly harder to keep those boundaries. Um, now, I've got some things in my personal life uh, that help create those boundaries. Um, married, kids. So I have other obligations uh, that folks who are maybe on the, you know, on the very early side of their career don't have. And all I can tell you is if something is really time sensitive, then you know, right? It's obvious. Um, it's apparent. There's no like, is this time sensitive? Is it not? And unless it's obvious, let me tell you something. The work will always be there the next day, no matter how hard you work. That was one lesson I learned working in the administration, uh, in the Bush administration, is I would regularly work. And now this is, this is at a time that was going to sound very foreign to most, most of you and your peers, Adam, um, before you know, widespread smartphones, before um, you know, laptops and all of that stuff. 
well, there were laptops, but it was, you know, that wasn't really prevalent that you would take your work home with you. It was sort of like if you needed to do work, you needed to be at your desk to do it. And um, I would regularly work until seven, eight o'clock at night um, on stuff. You know, I got I got to review this, I got to read that, I got to do this, I got to clear this, I got to write that. And you know, you show up, you know, so you do it. Okay, I'm gonna plug out. I, okay, it's 8:30. I'm gonna. I gotta get the hell out of here, and I gotta go home. Um, and then my wife and I, um, uh, she became pregnant, and she we we had our first child while I was right at the tail end of my experience at the administration. Now all of a sudden, I got a kid that's got to get picked up from daycare uh, by a certain time. Otherwise, they you know they kick her to the curb. And, um, okay, well, I'm, I got to go at 5.30 whether or not I want to, but I would go and then you get home and, and you start to realize the work is always going to be there. There's always more to do. And, um, you know, is it, you know, it, do you want to spend your time doing work when you could be doing, doing it, you know, uh, things that are more, much more personally fulfilling? You know, it's a hard choice that everybody has to face and everybody's got a different unique set of circumstances. But I would just, you know, the one big thing I would remind folks is, you know, when in doubt, the work will always be there. So that is an excellent maxim for us to end on. Thank you so much for joining us today, Kevin. It has been a pleasure. Thank you. I, thanks for listening to me. For more information regarding the podcast, please visit policy.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. For more information on the university's policies and responses to the pandemic, please visit covid19.wisc.edu. You can find more episodes on all streaming platforms. And if you enjoyed this episode, please rate, follow, and subscribe. Thanks for listening to 1050 Bascom COVID-19. Stay safe and take care of each other.